You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Thanks for this time, BZ. Um, you know, I, I'd do anything for you, Jared. I'd like hanging out with you and, and Drew, and you always hang out with the best people, so I know it's all going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> That's a dangerous thing to say to me, BZ. Um, although I, I know the, uh, the the risks of arrests in America at the uh, moment are uh, a lot more dire than uh, they are here, uh, given the current laws. But um, both Drew and I have just finished the documentary. Um, yep. We almost uh, were watching it in unison. Yep. Um, so first off, congratulations. I guess, Brian, I should start by giving you a... Um, an introduction. I feel like you need no introduction. One of the things I love about you so dearly is that you are so clear about your vocation as a pastor, not in general, but in a particular place. Uh, St. Joe's, Missouri has been put on the map for so many people around the world because of uh, your ministry at Word of Life Church, where people um, now in think of... James. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I love in the documentary, you even uh, uh, mentioned that you've uh, your standard joke around you've been uh, pastoring uh, longer than you've been an adult. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, since I was, I mean, effectively, I was pastoring when I was 17. And it turned, it was the catacombs, coffee house, and the Jesus movement. And then it turned into Word of Life Church when I was 22. But so, so technically, I've been a pastor for, officially, I've been a pastor for 39 years. Really, it's more like 45. <laughs> <laughs> which is absurd 44 i can't even do the math i don't know whatever it is <laughs> um but you've also been writing and the incredible blessing that um uh this this other vocation that um you uh you, you shepherd you you steward so well has been a gift for others and uh, we're excited that um, postcards for babylon is, is not only a, a book it's a um a, a film now um, but just want to say uh, welcome. Um, Inverse loves you. We love you. And, and thanks for uh, taking time aside during this moment to to write and uh, now make this important film. Thank you. Well, I mean, I, I can't take too much credit for making the film. I uh, gave permission and contributed as I could, but I'm not a filmmaker. I, I, can, I can make a sermon. I can maybe write a book, but I wouldn't know how to make a film. <laughs> Now, that's an interesting statement because one of the things I was going to ask you, since I know that you are not a filmmaker, but you are a film buff, right? And so mm -hmm. maybe a, just a light question to start off, which is, I'm curious just how you felt it came out. So what was your impressions of well, how the documentary I was, I was came together? I was very pleased. That, and just at a technical level, I was very pleased at how well it was done, mm. how well it was shot, how professional, just even just, you know, the look audio of course it, you know in the middle of production it faced the challenge of COVID and and all that that brought but I thought that uh, David and Kathy did a marvelous job and maybe I just back up and you know I didn't know these people and uh, they contacted me let I get the years right let's see they contacted me early in 2019 or spring let's say spring early summer 2019 and said they were interested in this documentary. I didn't know quite what to make of it. You know, I said, well, how, 
know, and so I didn't really understand. And I said, well, I just gave them permission. I said, okay. I said, I, I mean, and they said, well, will you help? I said, well, I don't know anything about making films. They said, well, no, will you, you know, contribute? Will you be in it? I said, yeah, I'll do that. But, but I was a little standoffish because I didn't know these people. I said, well, I'll do it if you can catch up with me. I said, but I'm not going to build my schedule around it. And so then they started talking about, you know, they wanted to do some filming in the fall of 2019. I said, well, Perry and I are off walking the Camino again, because that's all we want to do these days. And so I was being a little difficult, actually. And uh, they said, well, what if we came over to Spain and walked with you for a week? And my, honestly, my first, my first inclination was like, I, I don't even know you. Why would, I, I don't know if I want that. But I didn't say that. I said, I said, well, okay. But I made it difficult. I said, they said, okay, so we're going to come over this week. Where will you be? I said, I don't know. I said, I'm walking 500 miles. <laughs> it's, you know, I can't be exact about where I will be on a certain date because, you know, it depends on how many miles you walk a day for weeks on end. And uh, so finally about, I don't know, a two, just about two or three days. I mean, they flew into Madrid and they said, okay, where are you going to be? I said, oh, on this day, we're going to be in Rabanal as we head up into the mountains of Galicia. And they caught up with us and turned out to be lovely people. And I enjoyed every moment with them and, and they won me over pretty quick. But I did make them work for it. I will, I will tell you that. <laughs> Brian, uh those in the inverse community will know that, um, I mean, for everybody else that we have on as guests doing inverse, we get them to exegete text. But we figure if, if you want to hear Brian exegete a text, well, just listen to Word of Life podcasts like each week, um, or like not just once a week, but you can uh, join midweek as well for communion. Uh, but we've had you on uh, previously to talk films, uh, films with uh, John Deere, which has been fun. Talking films, one of the questions that people often ask about the film is the difference between the book and the film. If, if somebody was going to say, hey, I've read the book, uh, what do I get in the film that's different? Or I've seen the film, what am I going to get in the book that's different? How would you answer that? Well, in the film, you're going to get a whole lot more voices, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I quote a person here and there, you know, you'd kind of just sprinkle it with you know, some other people, but the film is filled with all kinds of wonderful thinkers and collaborators and Lisa Sharon Harper and my good pal Shane Claiborne, yeah. Walter Brueggemann Come sitting on, on a concordance. <laughs> that was great. If you haven't seen the film, you won't get that, but Walter Brueggemann sitting on a concordance <laughs> and, you know, and many others. And so, you know, in the film, I mean, I mean, you can clearly see a connection between the two. Uh, mm. The film is going to take you wider. The book might take you deeper. That might Ooh, be one way of yeah. talking about it, which is true all the time, right? Books uh -huh. will always take you deeper than a film, but but film, but films can. Well, one of the reasons I'm really excited about that this documentary exists let's just be honest. i mean the kind of people that show up you know for the inverse podcast you're probably you're all readers i mean i know that but you understand that that readers are a minority in our mm. world today right i mean people that actually will sit down and tackle a book and read it and i mean there are people that do that but there's a whole lot that don't and maybe in some ways you could make a case that 
that those that possibly may need to hear this message the most might be the least inclined to invest the effort in reading a book. But mm-hmm. everybody will watch a, a, you know, what is it? Is an hour and a half? Is it even that long? I'm not sure how long it is. Uh, you know, they'll sit down and watch a documentary. So I think it make, it's more accessible, perhaps. I would put it that way. Hmm. So I mean, you thought, you think, I, you think that's true? I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, well, Drew, do you want to go first? Uh, no, 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 you go, you go, go say what you're going to say. Um, uh, I really felt that the metaphor of um, others joining you on the walk, uh, and I love the footage of you and Perry, although I did feel jealous that um, these people that hadn't met you previously got to walk with you before um, uh, we've been friends for a while. And I know it's, I know it's my fault that I haven't um, responded to invitations, but I, I did feel jealous about that. But one of the things that I feel in the book um, is uh, your attentiveness to the contemplative journey, um, I, I feel is more central to how the book is written. Um, and while there's there's nods in that direction in the film, it, it's not uh, it, it's not what holds it like I feel the book does. Yeah, I think you're right. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I've, I've seen the film a few times and, and I've seen kind of different versions of it because, you know, it's, I saw it in the editing process when they're working out things, but I know that almost, um, you know, this, the film opens with something that sets it in, in a certain time and place, the vitriol of American politics in the present moment and then cuts immediately to Perry and I walking the Camino. And I'm just talking about the fact that one of the purposes for walking this Camino for the third time, by the way, the Camino de Santiago, I don't know if everybody knows what that is. It's a 500 mile ancient pilgrimage walk from from, uh, Saint-Jean-Pierre de Port in France over the Pyrenees Mountains to Santiago de Compostela, Spain. It's a 500 mile walk. And Perry and I do it and we carry our stuff and just you know, live as pilgrims for 40 days or so. Um, one of the reasons we were doing that was, was I knew this, is, this was 2019, fall of 2019, and I knew that 2020 was going to be difficult and hard and ugly, patrolic and all of that. And so I, I wanted to prepare for it. I wanted to be in a more contemplative place because it's so easy to be reactive especially if you know you're right mm-hmm. because but then your hate is justified in your own mind then you can hate mm-hmm. uh you know righteously <laughs> and and i just knew that that's just bringing fuel to the fire and i didn't want to be that way and so part of why I mean, it wasn't the only reason i had just turned 60 and so i was kind of it was kind of a stage of life thing i thought okay that feels like a, a stage of life and what do i want to be and what do i want to do from 60 to 80, that's the way I was thinking about it. And I said, well, I wanna, I wanna be, I wanna stay fit and healthy, that's one thing. I mm. want to uh, try to become a true elder, continue mm. to pastor, right? And maybe help people find their way into a more contemplative place. I, I think we're coming to the end of um, a, a Christianity energized by anger, because it's just going to burn itself out. Mm-hmm. And people will just have no more 
energy for that. And so I think what will give the church and Christianity something of a resonance, something of uh, a sense of having something worth saying, is if we really can, not in a sort of uh, faddish way, but in a deep, serious way, model a contemplative alternative to the us versus them dualisms and, and angry vitriol and reactionary postures that have that have been so damaging so mm. yeah i think that kind of stuff i hope that kind of stuff shows up in a pronounced way in the book probably not as much in the film because maybe they have a different goal hmm. yeah that's it's interesting i mean i i definitely felt like the film uh, the juxtaposition of your walk with some other scenes. It was just, it was a lot going on, even more than I think what I was expecting uh, before I had started it. Um, but there was one thing that you said in the very beginning, and maybe this is where you were beginning to tease just right now. You made a comment, and I think it was something close to the challenge to discipleship, to the challenge to disciple people into Jesus right now is that people are already discipled into something, right? And mm -hmm. I'm curious what you think as we're thinking about um, our landscape and white supremacy and white nationalism and even conspiracy theories and everything else going on. Um, what does discipleship look like? What, what is required on the ground in community for meaningful, substantial, faithful discipleship today in our context? Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, Tuesdays is our, our team meeting day. And we get together in the morning for two to three hours. We're doing it on Zoom right now. And so we have two or three hours. Some of it's planning and logistical stuff, but a lot of it's, you know, visionary. And I began the day by talking to them about what evangelism looks like in our current culture in the North American context. And it may not be that different in Australia. Mm. And Bear with me, because I don't, I don't, I don't know everybody here, and you're probably half of you are going to disagree. But just bear with me. Let me make my case. I think it looks a lot like inviting people into good, healthy churches. That is communities based around following Jesus. The way that um, evangel evangelicalism is born out of a revivalist movement. I mean, just, get, just give me a minute here. Um, you ran into the problem eventually of Christendom, and that is you had a baptized continent. But at some point, people thought, you know, maybe people need to actually live their faith. There needs to be some sort of deeper uh, energy for this thing. And so you have the revivalist movements. Wesley, Whitfield in the United States, Edwards, generation two later, Finney, that sort of thing. Um, and then it reaches maybe an apex with, with Billy Graham. Okay, it kind of all moves there. And for whatever else it was, it was certainly this. It was a deep privatization of the faith. And it was entirely afterlife oriented. And in fact, we would say things like, you know, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about joining a church. I'm talking about you, we would use this vernacular, getting saved. And it was a private we would use the word personal, but it's really private, individualistic transaction between me and Jesus that the ultimate purpose is to guarantee my 
spot, my reservation in heaven when I die. I think most of us understand, okay, that's deeply flawed. Um, and so what do we need to do now? We need to understand that the Christian life is something to be lived here and now. It is following Jesus in some sort of real way that is countercultural, but it cannot be done as a solo project. It's not just a, you know, I go to the bookstore, I buy some books, and now I have this self-help project to become more Christ-like. I, I just don't think that can be done. It must be done in the community of people that in some way are committed to the same vision of being shaped by the life and message of Jesus of Nazareth. So one of the things we've done at Word of Life, this is the church that I lead, is we have basically erased any distinction between evangelism and discipleship, mm. which, by the way, is very consistent with the early church. I mean, their evangelism was their catechism. Yeah, they, they weren't standing on the on the corners of Alexandria and handing out tracts and asking people to pray sinners' prayer and ask Jesus into their heart. <laughs> they were basically going about their business of being an alternative society, living this new life that is based upon the risen Christ. And then as people got interested, they, they would maybe want to join them. And they might even try to do so. Well, why don't, you, why don't you come to some of our classes for a while? You might not like it. This might not be for you. Mm-hmm. And um, so the other thing I said to our team today is that without irony, no irony, no sarcasm, no cynicism, not trying to be cute, I see one of our tasks right now as to evangelize Christians. Mm. Because Christians need to hear the evangelion, the good news, the gospel, because it's been so distorted through white nationalism and all of those sorts of things that it's almost been obscured. And uh, I, I'm not one, I don't, I don't like, I'm not one that likes to say to someone who, who to, to a baptized person who says I'm a Christian, I just don't like to say, no, you're not. I don't think that's a good thing to do. Uh, but on the other hand, I do think there are people that have never really heard the gospel or understood the gospel or seen the gospel, even though they may have been in church for decades. And so that's our, that's our, here's, you ask me a question and I can just go. So sometimes, you know, Drew, Jared, you got to jump in there and say, okay, Brian, enough of that. But that's my response. No, that's well, good. Busy. That's good. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny when I was um, coming to Messiah, coming back to Messiah, really to teach and my colleague, Emerson Powery, African-American New Testament scholar, uh, thing he said to me was, welcome to the mission field, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with, you know, um, at this Christian college, but it's precisely with that same, um, I, think, I, I, I totally get that. And I resonate yeah. with that. Amen. Yeah. 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 And, and that's certainly how I think about my work. Um, just as a maybe slight turn, but I'm just thinking about um, one of the things that surprised me in the in the film that I wasn't necessarily expecting, but I was pleased that it was grappling with this was there's a scene where um, Scott Hancock mm-hmm. is having a dialogue around the Confederate monuments, right? On the 4th of July. Yeah. yeah and he's wow. trying to, ha- I mean, in some ways it's this awkward moment because he's trying to have a genuine conversation. He's completely outnumbered um, and he's trying to unravel the myth of, you know, the lost 
um, the lost cause myths and narratives that people have been socialized into. It was just a, um, a really striking um, moment there to see him trying to engage. In some ways, they were just not going to, right? Um, they were not going to have that conversation with him. But anyway, I'm curious how what you thought about that aspect of the I film think that, as well. That's, that's one of the more powerful scenes in the film. And what's brilliant about it is, I mean, you know, some scenes can be set up. And you know the film director can say, "I want you to stand here, say this, do that." This is just let the cameras roll, baby. And let's see what happens. And in the moment, you see Scott Hancock being thoroughly unsuccessful, right, in changing anyone's mind. But it's on film, mm. and it's in a documentary, and people removed a couple of steps from that can watch that. And from a little bit more objective posture say, I, I think this guy seems to be serious. I mean, he's a, he's a history professor or a professor of African studies. And these people are not listening. And I mean, I think, I think it has the potential to open up some people and think, hmm, I, I don't want to be like some of the people I see in this scene. And um, so I thought that was really, it was powerful, it was moving, I think it's effective, and it was just something that happened mm. in the moment, and they just caught it. But you, you see some of the ugliness of that, of that, you know, there's that one, uh, towards the end of that scene, there's this one guy, he's pretty using some profane language, and he just doesn't want to hear anything. And he's not open to anything. And he's just cursing. And, and I think most years ago, dear Lord, I don't want to be like that. I'm not like that. Am I, am I like that? I don't want to be like that. And so I think, I think it's well done. Mm. Yeah, Brian, I, I love the fact that you use the language of effective because um, it, it reveals how thoroughly your imagination has been formed around the life of Christ that you'd think of that kind of beautiful witness as effective because I'm sure there's lots of people um, who saw um, uh, this brother um, himself, um, uh, African-American, uh, a professor, uh, engaging and being yelled at and screamed at and um, uh, people swearing at him. And, and we've seen his composure and being loving and yeah. Christ, I mean, my hat's off to him. I don't think, I don't know that I would have done as well. <laughs> mm. You know. and, and that goes directly to the question of formation and what is it to be formed. And when Merton talks about um, be anything, uh, be, be uh, a, a drunkard, a swindler, a, a bastard, but um, a, avoid being successful, I'm so aware <laughs> that he's writing um, as an American where success is not assessed by um, a faithful witness to the beauty we see in Christ, but by all these other metrics. Yeah. Um I would love if you wouldn't mind to comment a bit on, I'm sure a lot of people hear your your call for the church to be the church, for the church to embody um, the way of Jesus and respond um, that that is beautiful. For those who are listening and can't seem to find a people that look like that, that are interested in that, um, that want more than their tithes, um, where are these sisters and brothers to go? What are people to do? I can't, I can't say you live here, so go there, <laughs> do that. But I believe those communities are there. Mm -hmm. And without being dismissive, I kind of just want to say, seek and you'll find. 
and you mm. might find it online you know mm-hmm. i mean i'm that's maybe not the best but that may be one way that you begin okay that's a, that's a way you begin um a a an americanized church driven from a white supremacist engine and foundation is very visible and very vocal in america but it's not the whole of the church by any means mm. it's just not and um you know i'm seeing i see kenneth tanner here i don't you know some of you i may know i don't know here but i have to give a little shout out to kenneth you know I mean, here's a guy, you know, I don't know if you know who Kenneth is, but he's up in the Detroit area with Holy Redeemer. And he, he, his church isn't as big as that Jeffress guy at the First Baptist Dallas. Mm-hmm. But, but he's faithful. <laughs> and he's That's right. About Jesus and he's emphasizing formation. And those churches are there and, and those communities are there and they can be. So I would just urge, urge you not to, don't let, I mean, I mean, one of the reasons I ran, there are several reasons why I wrote posts for the cards from Babylon, but one of the reasons I write books like that is I'm just not going to let the Christian nationalists have Jesus. I'm not going to, I'm not going to cede that ground. Uh, You can have what they can have, what they can have, and they can have their message and they can have their every Sunday looks like 4th of July and fly their flags. But, but I'm going to contend with you about Jesus and the Mm. message of Jesus. And we'll just keep, and here's the thing, Jesus shines through everything. Yeah. We've come through a period of time that in one sense, I would say is about 40 years. I mean, I would say from, you know, about 1980 to about now, we've been through a period of time where the most visible and vocal expression of the body of Christ in America has effectively become the religious wing of the Republican Party and mm-hmm. not much more than that. And yet somehow people know that's not Jesus. Mm-hmm. They, they actually do know that. And, and you'll hear critics, the, you'll hear atheists <laughs> say, well, I, I don't know about all this, but I know, I know that isn't, if there's anything to Jesus, it, it doesn't look like that. Mm-hmm. And so, so somehow Jesus the, the church the church's witness is spoiled and damaged and stained and shamed but not Jesus mm. and so I, I think find communities that sincerely talk about Jesus a lot mm. and, and and allow Jesus to as much as they're able to speak for himself where Jesus is not clearly being used as you know, taking the name of the Lord in vain as a mascot for some other agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, find a church that will dare to do a six-month series on the Sermon on the Mount. They exist. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know. I'm just rambling. Good rambling, BZ. It's, it's, it's why we love listening to you. Um, uh, Drew, if you, if you don't mind, I would love to give BZ permission um, to imagine himself pastoring uh, on these lands. Um, so, so let's leave Turtle Island. Um, uh, let's come to the over 300 nations that were, were known um, previously by many different names, including where I am now as Wajuk Nungabuja. And BZ, we've just had January 26 here in Australia, which since 1994, so within my lifetime, 
uh, I, I just entered high school, they um, changed to a national day of celebration for Australia. Um, it happens to be the date that invasion started in Australia. So as you can imagine, um, uh, William Cooper, who in the 1930s, if, if you go to Yad Vashem, which I know that you've been several times, um, uh, one of the few Australians who is actually acknowledged in Yad Vashem is uh, a Wiradjuri uh, Aboriginal Australian man, um, Pastor William Cooper, who in the 1930s, he led protests against what the Nazis were doing um, uh, before he had legal rights to be considered something other than flora and fauna in Australia. And he was, as a pastor, standing with Jewish people. So William Cooper was a discussion when we were naming um, our little Noah, um, whether Cooper would feature in his name. That's how much William Cooper uh, means to us. He, on January 26, called for a national day of mourning um, that the churches across Australia um, would uh, remember it um, in terms of the lives that were cost with the genocide that's happening here. BZ, I love that in the film, um, you started the conversation around America's original sin, not with slavery, uh, but with um, genocide and land theft. I would love you to talk us through, if you were pastoring in Australia, and given this National Day of Remembrance, which is filled with um, uh, all the kind of things that happen on the 4th of July for you, um, what, what kind of word would you want to speak to people who are seeking to put their baptism before their citizenship of this place? Um, if you were to imaginatively step in what it is to write postcards from this Babylon, what kind of word would you want to be saying here? You know, either you see the kingdom of God or nothing changes. Um, if, if Jesus is relegated to the secretary of afterlife affairs, where yeah. his primary task is to guarantee you admission into a post-mortem heaven, uh, then you can leave all of this stuff alone. But once you see Jesus as Lord and see the kingdom of Christ as a present possibility and thus a rival to all counterclaims. Um, well, I mean, I don't know that it's that much different than what I do here. I mean, you mm. know, I mean, I, 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 and this is not a new problem, but I regret that the global church is so American. Yeah. When I say this is not a new problem, I'm just, this is just kind of always the reality. If the dominant superpower or say empire, whatever term you like, mm. um, is ostensibly, although we understand this can't really be the case, but ostensibly, quote, Christian, then the church within that empire, within that superpower, has uh, an outsized influence upon the rest of the world. And um, so I've been traveling the world for, I don't know how long I've been traveling the world, nigh on 40 years. And uh, I mean, almost, almost always in the context of gathering with, with other believers and making contributions toward that. And it's just everywhere I go, it's just too American. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's both the blue sky. Outside, it's America. Outside, it's America. And um, so I would probably actively encourage that to be somewhat diminished mm. and say, you know, 
why? So somebody says, so then why is BZ on the inverse podcast? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think, I think you have to acknowledge it. You just have yeah. to say that much of the platform of American Christianity has nothing to do with our fidelity to Christ, yeah. but just because we happen to be hosted by an economic military superpower, which is antithetical to the kingdom of Christ. I think I think we just I would say all of those things and mm -hmm. be very clear on that and say that if if our communal effort to follow Christ doesn't feel at least somewhat countercultural, then um, then we should hold it suspect. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, people that know me over the last four years know that I've been a critic of the Trump administration and Christian mm -hmm. support of that. But look, wait, wait, wait. but I, I was a critic of all this before too. That's the, right. The Obama years too. I yeah. mean, I got invitations to the national prayer breakfast every year, and I every year said I'm not going. Yeah. Uh, because I don't trust myself to have close proximity to power. Mm -hmm. it, you know, I mean, the, the, the ring of power seduces mm. and, you know, even, even little hobbits sometimes can come under, under that influence <laughs> and, and wizards that know better want to have nothing to do with it. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I've had lots of these invitations to participate in programs or, and, and some of them may be offered in good faith. But I mean, you can't play golf with Caesar and then be a prophet. So I would I would just talk like this, although, although let me let me let me let me say, let me say that I, I, I do talk like this. I say stuff like this. On the other hand, you can't build a church, a community of Jesus followers on negative energy either. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can't be, I mean, I'd be upfront about these things. I would critique these things, but long term that won't sustain a community. It still has to be just um, really focused on Jesus, talking mm -hmm. about Jesus, loving Jesus. Um, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm kind of radical on this. I, I don't think that long I'm suspicious. I'm suspicious that long term you can fulfill the second commandment without the first commandment. Mm. Second commandment has to do with justice. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself is the biblical sort of, you know, that, that's, that's the biblical vision for that. That's, that's what justice somehow will look like. Mm. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Uh, I know there are those that say, okay, that's what we want to do, but we're going to sort of somewhat diminish worship. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a wild turn here. Just bear with me. Um, <laughs> you know that story about Mary of Bethany, hmm. two three days before the crucifixion. Pretend that you'd never heard it. Pretend that you'd never heard this story. You've heard it, but you just have to try. And they're sitting there at this dinner, and this woman comes. She's wealthy. And she's got a bottle of perfume that's worth a year's wages. All right, already we're scandalized. What in the world is some woman doing with a 30,000, 40,000, whatever dollar bottle of perfume? We're already scandalized that this thing even exists, much less that someone that claims to be influenced by Jesus owns one. 
And then she takes it and she pours all of it on Jesus in this extravagant moment. And people begin to murmur and they begin to criticize and they say, why this waste? This could have been sold for, you know, 300 denarii, year's wages and given to the poor. And if we don't know the story, if we don't know the story, we really, we think that Jesus is going to go, yes, that's right, Mary. Uh, that was a waste. You shouldn't have done that. And this is why, you know, Jesus is unwieldy. We just can't seem to, because he surprises us. I, he should say, he says, no, she's done a beautiful thing. Mm. Um, so if we're talking about, uh, I, I, I would be unabashed, unafraid, to bring prophetic criticism to all of these things that kowtow to empire and want to snuggle up to, you know, you know, that will sell their soul for the proximity to power and want to bury the bodies and hide the sins, all of that. But that can't be everything that we say or do. Coming first is this extravagant, outlandish love for Jesus that other people will see as a waste. I was hiking in the mountains one time in the winter in the Rocky Mountains, and uh, it was kind of a solo hike, and I was a little nervous because you don't want to get lost. And I was high above the tree line, and no one, you know, people don't do much hiking in the winter in the mountains. But, and I came across another hiker, and it was kind of comforting to me. He'd had more experience. He'd been there more. And so, so we're snowshoeing and hiking, and up high in the mountains in the Rockies, and we're getting to know one another. And then came the fateful question. You know, I knew it was coming. I didn't know how long I could hold it off. But well, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought I would. I, th I was tempted to say I'm an author, which is true enough, and I could put. But I could only put him off for so long. So I just came right out and said, "I'm a pastor of a church," and it didn't go over well. And. Uh, <laughs> He, he was a Don, a former Christian, an angry former Christian. And he said, uh, and he kind of started going off. And, and then he said, uh, I'm going to tell you what you Christians should do. <laughs> well, by all means, please <laughs> tell me what, what we should do. He said, you should do good works. You should do works mm. of justice, but you shouldn't worship Jesus. I said, well, I think you've, I think you've misunderstood me. I think you're under the assumption that I'm just sort of naturally just just a good guy that cares about justice <laughs> and cares about, you know, helping people. I said, left to my own devices, I can be stunningly selfish. <laughs> <laughs> I said, really the only hope I have that I can give my life in service of others is that first of all, that I continue to feed my love for Jesus and worship him. And, and he maintains his beauty before my eyes. And I'm infatuated by him, if you want to use that kind of language, mm. or I'm mesmerized by him. That's what opens the door for me to have the capacity to then speak to justice and seek to embody justice and to struggle for justice. But it, it doesn't start just there. That's not the starting point. Maybe it is for you. It's not for me. So I was kind of all over the road there, but that's how I respond to some of that. Mm. Busy, one of the things that, I know that infatuation and that mesmerizing has led to in your journey is a real sensitivity to the stories that um, underlie the Babylon that you're living through. Uh, one of my favorite lines in A Farewell to Mars is uh, where you talk about the um, 
the, the monuments, flags and anthems um, that, that hide the bodies underneath. Um, would you talk a little bit about, um, uh, your tangents feel like I have permission, BZ, to take it on, on a tangent. I know Drew will no doubt bring us um, uh, back onto the, onto the pilgrimage, uh, back on the road. But if we could um, go down a little cul-de-sac for uh, just a little bit. Um, your sensitivity to the realities of Turtle Island um, before they were Babylon and, and what the, the Trail of Tears, that story, um, it was one of the things that really impressed me when we first had you out in Australia is your interest um, uh, in the reality of Aboriginal people here and your knowledge of um, uh, First Nations people in, in your own backyard and sensitivity uh, to that. Uh, would you would you speak to that in terms of um, uh, what it is to be in Babylon and listening to the stories of, of those who um, have cried on lands that weren't always occupied by an empire? Yeah, one of the things I say about postcards from Babylon, I mean, we're, which Farewell to Mars and postcards from Babylon are sort of siblings in my mm -hmm. collection of books, is that maybe the most important theological shift that most American Christians need to make is to see America not as a kind of biblical Israel, but as a kind of biblical Babylon. Mm -hmm. um, very early on in American colonial history, English, and then um, you know after 1776, we're going to call it American. Um, part of the way that American Christians justified their genocidal ethnic cleansing actions towards the ethnic, the, the original inhabitants was to cast what they were doing in the story of Joshua. That America was a new kind of Israel. This was a new mm. kind of promised land. The original inhabitants are essentially the Canaanites that must be driven out or exterminated. And so quite literally, I mean, the first massacre you have of English colonists is, I believe, in 1619, the Mystic Massacre, mm. of the Pequod tribe. Uh, you, you had the second wave of English colonists who needed more cultivated land. This, that's a lot of hard work. They were having trouble sustaining their colony. And they said, well, this Pequod tribe nearby, you know, they've, they've got land. Maybe we should just take it. And there were some misgivings because these are, <laughs> these are Puritans. They're supposed to be Christian folk here. And so they, their, their, their chaplain, Reverend Stone, said, well, I will spend the night in prayer. And sure enough, at daybreak, he reported that, that God had given them clear title to possess the land, and he used Joshua-type language. And what ensued was, in fact, a massacre in which 700 mostly women and children were yeah. murdered. And there was still some, you know, qualms of conscience about this. And that's when uh, Captain Mason said, but I would refer you to the wars of Joshua and David. Sometimes when the sins of the heathens have risen to such a level, we must dung, their, we must dung the ground with their flesh. And this is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. They use all of that kind of language. Um, so... America is not a kind of Israel, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a kind of Babylon. 
Now, it may be a gentler, kinder Babylon, and it may not. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it's still, it's still all day long. It's Babylon. And so we have to learn to live as exiles. And part of my, part of, you know, I have been very interested in the Native American experience in these United States. And I've read extensively. And I think there's two reasons for that. One, originally, you know, I love, I love the outdoors. I love creation. I love the mountains, especially, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so I just, I'm, I want to be in the mountains as often as I can. And the mountains are some of the places where the marks and memories of the original inhabitants have not been completely erased. Yes. And so, so that sort of, that started, hmm. There were people here before. What happened to them? Mm. And then I began to read. And um, then then we became very close to a Kickapoo family. They're in our Mm. church. They've been in our church for forever. Kickapoo is one of the tribes that's near where I live. Mm -hmm. And um, my youngest son's best friend. My son played football. He played football, and, and he was—he came from broken. I won't tell the whole story, but but uh, I became like a second father to him, mm-hmm. and he sort of grew up in our house. I mean, he didn't literally live here, but he was here all the time, and and I was the closest thing to a father figure he had, and he's full-blooded, 100% Kickapoo, and I began to hear his story and the story of his mother and. And, and then his grandparents and and that will break you open yes it will stories um you know it's it's easy to criticize uh, and i'm gonna i'm gonna speak from what i know i'm gonna speak from the from the north america it's easy to say okay you you look at the native american population and they're, they're at the bottom of everything mm. economics drug addiction suicide you know they're at the bottom of every bad list, you know. And people can say, well, you know, why is that? I said, well, here's a thought experiment. Why don't I just take you and drop you off? And um, we're going to put you in the Amazon somewhere. I'm going to find an indigenous people group and let you stay with them for a year. And I'm going to come back a year later and see how you're doing. And I'm going to meet with the tribal elders. And they're going to tell me, you know, this guy, he didn't know how to make a dugout canoe. He doesn't know how to go hunt any food. We have to take care of him. We have to give him everything he, and mostly he just sits around in his tent and stays drunk. Because, <laughs> see, that's what happens if you completely up in a culture and a society right. and completely uh, disorient them. And suddenly they're thrown into a world that they just, the trauma is so severe. Mm. that it can break people for generations. And BZ, to link it back to the film, um, the the tragic reality that one of the uh, men interviewed experienced that just in his lifetime in terms of being a returned war veteran. Now, if you, um, and you you discover in the film that um, he he took his own life, um, you expand that one experience of of war over generations and generations um in your own backyard on the land um on which you worship 
um, and you get a sense of the kind of devastation we're talking about. The first time I saw, you know, this is before the film was released, but the filmmakers would send me versions of it and I would see them. And I didn't know this story. And Perry and I are watching it. And I'm seeing this guy who, who three, three tour Iraq, no, Afghan war veteran, sergeant, paratrooper, who returns his medals, and he's very articulate, uh, very intelligent. Uh, you can tell he's a deep thinker, a believer. And I, I'm telling Paris, I got to meet this guy. I want to have him come speak at our church. I love this guy. What a fantastic message. And then to find out that he'd taken his own life because PTSD was just too much for him to bear. Oh, I mean, I just started weeping. It just was, mm. I mean, I, I had just opened myself up to loving this guy and wanting to get to know him and thinking, okay, I'll certainly have an opportunity to meet him and then find out that, no, not, not, not now. And mm -hmm. uh, that was a blow. If you haven't seen the film, like, you know, we gave something away, but, but that was a blow. You know, Brian, there was another um, aspect of the documentary that, um, that surprised me and it was actually the after part of the documentary. Um, you know, I got in an hour and a half and realized that there's more. And so I was listening and I didn't quite finish, but I got through most of the conversation, yeah. um, the round table conversation. But one of the things that um, I noticed that was a part of the struggle there was a conversation around um, the church as it relates to politics. And it seemed like that was where some tension was kind of beginning to emerge. And, um, and I'm, I was curious, um, at least up to the point that I had seen, I hadn't fully gotten to hear exactly where maybe you would have positioned yourself in some of that. So I'm curious, like I was thinking about, you know, some of the work that Jared has done, um, you know, I'm sure you're know, familiar with some of the stuff, you know, Bonhoeffer 4, where he and some of the Christians were, you know, disrupting the train, the soldiers who were training for war by literally camping in their midst and getting arrested and going into solitary confinement or um, the Love Makes a Way movement um, there in Australia, where they engage in one of the largest civil disobedience uh, movements and sit-ins, um, trying to sit in with politicians until basically these politicians, because the the refugee children there were being held in indefinite detention, right? And so trying to bear faithful witness to what was going on there. I'm, I'm curious what you think uh, about that kind of I'll call it political action, right? On the ground, grassroots yeah, I, I think um, response. In the, in, the, in the discussion, the panel discussion following the film, yeah. where there was tension, I think it was a result of our sometimes sloppy use of language. Mm -hmm. When we use the word political, when we really mean partisan. Yeah. Uh, the church is inescapably political. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the kingdom of God, look, you could translate just in your own mind, every time you see the kingdom of God, you could just translate the politics of God. Yeah. Yeah. By the political, we just mean the means by which we will go about a, pursuing the common good. Right. Okay, so that is something that is absolutely intrinsic to the gospel and to the cause of Christ. But we use the word politics or political sometimes as a word where we really mean party politics or mm -hmm. partisan politics. And what we're saying is we, th I, I, I would concur 
that the church needs to be very wary about being used by a political party where it becomes where, where it's oh, a pledge that the problem with Christian right and Christian left is that Christian then gets reduced to adjective duty. And what what is supreme is the all-important political noun of mm. right or left. And then Christian is sort of just trotted out to be a mascot. The church is inescapably political. What we shouldn't be is uh, pledging our allegiance to a particular party. Again, that's not to say that at every moment in time there's a moral equivalency between all parties, because there's not. I'm not I'm not making that claim. But I'm saying we just we have to just constantly make that evaluation. Mm. We constantly have to say, okay, is this consistent with an ethics formed in the light of Christ? Not, well, I've already you know committed myself to the donkey party or the elephant party, and I got to stick with the elephants or the donkeys come hell or high water. That's when it becomes a problem, and I think that's clearly what we've seen. Uh, that you you that's and that's where you know people that are even just halfway paying attention see the hypocrisy. Mm. So that Bill Clinton is, you know, they're they're wanting to declare him completely unfit for office because of uh, moral disqualification, and yet Donald Trump gets a free pass. And you know, we're not we're not voting for a, you know, pastor. We're voting for the president. You know, all that kind of language. Uh, well, that that simply comes from being partisan. So um, I don't mind. I'm not only do I not mind. I think I think we have to make a political. I, I say we have to. It just, it constantly varies. Mm. But I live, and we live, I think probably everybody here, I don't know where you're all from, but most all of us, not all of us, live in a participatory democracy. Mm. And, and by the way, this is a new thing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is, this is in, in the whole scope of things, this is new. Uh, you know, we were ruled by kings and emperors and that sort of thing. And all of a sudden there's this idea, you know, government by the people, democracy which I think most of us think is a, is a good idea. I think it's a good idea until it's not. <laughs> mm. Until it really goes bad, which it has the potential to do, because it can, it can also just turn into mob rule. Um, and, and, so, and so that's why you need to have systems in place that the, minority is always, the minorities are always protected, because democracy without some sort of real strong ethical moral underpinnings can just turn into mob rule. Mm-hmm. And we don't want that. So I, I don't think the church, the church can survive in almost any kind of political system. I mean, it has. I mean, the most vicious of tyrannies sometimes can all, I mean, I think of like maybe North Korea, mm-hmm. but even China, you know, I mean, China attempted to wipe out the church and they haven't done a very good job at that. The church <laughs> is flourishing in China. Um so what do you know, churches can survive in dictatorships, authoritarian governments, you know, far left, you know, socialist. I mean, the church can function in all of those and it can, it can be a prophetic witness. It can call things to light. It can call for people. It can continually proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Amen. And that we almost appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and we can take him to Matthew 25 and all of that sort of stuff, and we should. Uh, but but be just be careful about the lure of power. Mm-hmm. About because then we think, well, well, I, I want to set the world right, and the in the quickest way is to have the power of the sword, the mm-hmm. power of coercion, 
I think this is the third temptation in the wilderness in the, the yes. order of yep. Matthew. And, and it was a real, I think it was a real temptation for Jesus. Yes. Jesus said, I could raise an army. I could overthrow Pilate and get rid of Herod and I can set up a righteous government, but I'd have to bow to the devil to do it. Mm. He perceives that that's, he said, that would be bowing down to Satan. And, and, and in the end, in the, in the long run of history, it'd be meet the new boss, same as the old boss. It would be that, that Jesus would be known in history as Jesus the Great. You know, he's the one that, remember, remember when Jesus, remember that guy, Jesus of Nazareth, became Jesus the Great, drove the Romans out of Palestine, and then, you know, marched on Rome and set up his own government. And we had, you know, three centuries of the Jesus dynasty. But it, but it wouldn't change the world. It would just change, it would just say, it would change the names in history books, but not change the world. So, yes, we're politically engaged, but I think mostly, mostly as a prophetic witness. And I think there needs to be always a, at least a, a moment of self-reflection before we say, and yes, you can entrust me with that power. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think Christians have to be suspicious of being entrusted with power because that's a euphemism for the sword and it's antithetical to the cross. Yeah. Now, now some of my, you know, Anabaptist influences shining through here and so be it. Mm. Yeah, BC, I loved in the discussion how you brought out the importance of embodiment and not just jumping from um, uh, Jesus gave me new ideas now to engage in the the civil space, but instead um, I've been baptised into a people uh, that um, no one baptises themselves, that it takes others um, to be a part of, of this new reality. And both for Drew and Myself, um, uh, Anabaptism um, has been an important conversation partner uh, in ways that some Anabaptists say that we're more Anabaptist uh, than them, even though we're not Anabaptists. Like there are like six Mennonites in Australia, right? Like there's, like we've grown up in in different places. Um, Another conversation partner for us, uh, which I thought about particularly um, with our dear sister Lisa Sharon Harper's um, uh, contribution to the film and the after after discussion was that of um, the Christianity, which has always been aware that America has been a Babylon because they've served as slaves in Babylon's empire. And uh, that same Christianity developed a way to engage um, where they could assert at the same time that America is Babylon, yet um, uh, uh, God Almighty has spoken from Washington, D.C., and uh, what it was to have a change of laws to towards that which is um, more healing, just, loving, uh, was um, an act of God. Um, I, I would love to hear where, when it comes to the prophetic Black church tradition, and none of us are under any illusions that um, there aren't Black churches that are equally caught up in nationalism, but we're talking about the, the prophetic Black church tradition and the kind of uh, critique um, it brings to Anabaptist quietism, um, I think, and maybe I'll make it concrete. So um, uh, one of the incredible things that um, Drew is involved with, as well as his uh, role as a professor um, and uh, involvement um, teaching in a, a local church, is that Free Together is a collective of different Christians across different denominations that are trying to change the reality in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where one in every five dollars that goes to government, goes towards the police, um, for police to do things that they're not trained to do. And so it's that quote that 
um, whenever you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And when um, police are trained to respond um, in, in ways that um, everybody is seen as a threat, um, uh, instead of sending in social workers, if you send people in with trained in shooting people, it's no surprise we should see the results that happen. Do you see the work of like um, uh, free together in those kind of collectives of Christians? Um, is that is that somehow a failure of the church because it's not happening? Whole congregations being involved? Is that just the reality of um, uh, we're, we're formed as a people? Um, in liturgy and then need to find other collectives to actually enact that formation together. Um, what, what is the place of what Martin King called um, this ongoing revolution, which is democracy? Yeah, I mean, without the, without the American Black church, you don't have Diedrich Bonhoeffer. That's right. I mean, you don't know him. You, he would be an obscure German theologian that only a bunch of, you know, theological nerds would ever be aware of. Hmm. I mean, he becomes Diedrich Bonhoeffer in Harlem. Um, hmm. So we, we need to be aware of that witness. I've always had to somewhat resist being a Christian anarchist. <laughs> Our friend Greg Boyd would, would identify with that. This is Jacques Ellul. Hmm. And, uh, and I'm always tempted toward that because it just, because I, I, I want to be, I want, I want it to be simple, um, but it, I think in, at the end of the day, it's not. And it's why, for example, I have to wrestle with the, with like making the distinction between the waging of war and a police force and a police function. Now, in dysfunctional societies, that that distinction probably is erased. But in healthy societies, there should be a distinction. And it's why I've been yeah. so grieved post 9-11, because that's when it happened. So for 20 years now, we've seen the increased militar militarization of the police in America, where even in, they look like military. They don't, they don't look like the constable keeping the peace. They look like those that are now occupying a war zone. And in that, that's, right. that's in their mentality. Um, it would be easier, though, for me to, to take a kind of a Christian anarchist, real radical Anabaptist position and just say Christians can't participate in any of that. Mm -hmm. But I think that's an abdication that I can't, when the day's done, I just can't go there. And part of that, I think, comes from just being a day in and day out pastor for almost four decades. Yeah. And having, I mean, we have, we have a fair number of policemen in our church. I'm glad, you know, I want them formed in this, um, maybe a related thought. So for a long time, for, for a good number of years, I would not cast a, what we call a legitimate ballot, I suppose, for president, because I didn't want um, my vote to be construed as me authorizing someone to wage war on my behalf. So I would always go to the polls and I would vote at a more local level. And then for president, I would write in Bob Dylan or Wendell Berry <laughs> or, or one year Treebeard. <laughs> and, and I was comfortable with that until one day, well, I'll just tell you when it was. It was the 2016 election. And I thought, you know, if this would happen to go awry, I think people like me are probably going to be okay. Mm. But other people may not. Mm -hmm. And so for me to vote for whoever, for Bob Dylan, 
might be coming from a kind of a position of privilege that I don't, you know, I'm not really, I don't have much at stake here for me. Yeah. And so here's what I did. I went and I found one of the undocumented members of our church, undocumented immigrant. I know their story intimately well. I have spent considerable of my own personal funds hiring immigration attorneys for them. I have gone to them to the Division of Homeland Security. I have been with them in courtrooms. I have heard their story. It's heartbreaking. It's frustrating. They came legally and then there were problems. I won't tell the whole story, but they're just in an impossible situation. And so I went to them and I said, you know, we have this election coming up and uh, you don't have a vote, but I do. But you've got more at stake than I do. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you my vote. Mm -hmm. What you're going to do is you're going to think about it, read about it, pray about it, or do whatever you want to do about it. And then you tell me who you want to vote for. And I am on election day. I'm nothing more than your errand boy. Mm. I show up and I cast a vote that you've instructed me to vote. And by the way, I did this very publicly. I told this to my church. I didn't say who it was, but I told, and it made some people mad. Somebody came up and said to me, that's illegal. You can't do that. I said, A, it's not illegal. B, you let Fox News tell you who to vote for. <laughs> Damn, there it is. <laughs> and you know, here's the thing. They stayed in our church. They, they didn't leave. Because that, 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 is the, that is the capital of decades of pastoring. That's right. And being with them and baptizing their kids and loving them and being with them on their worst days. That, that, that it, sometimes, not always, but sometimes you can actually be a pastor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Those, those, those are my thoughts. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be out there. I mean, I'm talking about my, I, I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about Drew or Jared or Inverse. I'm talking about me. I probably wouldn't be associated with, you know, some sort of really right, defund the police. But I'm perfectly willing to participate in panels and serious discussions about how can we reform police? And I, especially I'm deeply committed to this idea. We, this, this militarization of the police has been a disaster. Mm -hmm. It's a horrible thing. And, you know, how do we go about that? But I mean, there may be some radical solutions that are needed, but, you know, I, just, I, can't, I can't know everything. Um, for me, it's been enough that I, I realized I couldn't embrace a Christian anarchism um, where, where we're just staying. It's kind of a radical, radical Anabaptist position mm -hmm. where we have no involvement with the government. I mean, it's to the point that, I mean, so, so what, you can't, you can't have Christian public school teachers. You can't have Christians, you know, on the city council. Well, I don't know that that's the direction I want to go. That doesn't seem to necessarily be healthy. I mean, that doesn't seem to be helping anything. Mm. Um, and it but, doesn't but, risk crucifixion. Right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, so, so in that sense, there is a little bit of Gnosticism with it. Yeah. Not, I'm, not in, I'm not wanting to use that as a pejorative, but really analytically. That's uh, right. That, that it's interesting. In the, in the pre-Constantine centuries, the Gnostics were not persecuted mm. uh, because they weren't, because they weren't seen as a political threat. Yep. It was the Christians who were persecuted, the Orthodox Christians, not the Gnostics. Yeah. Because it was just too otherworldly. And, and 
you, you can you can try to be too pure if you understand what I mean by that. That's mm -hmm. you have to interpret what I'm trying to say here. Trying to stay too far above the fray, and so I've had to renegotiate that over the last let's say five years. Mm. Yeah, I appreciate that, and I think um, there's no question. I mean, both me and Jared, because of our way of life, we. I guess have a foot in the broad Anabaptist spectrum. And I always say I, I value the radical discipleship wing of the Anabaptists movement, right? Yes. Um, but there certainly is a political quietism that exists on one wing or centrists, clean hands, not involved in anything other than trying to, I don't know, anyway, we can go all day on that. Um, but I did want to, since you brought it up, I, I figured I'd, make a case and then let you um, hear my thoughts on it. Cause as you brought up defund the police, um, I just want to make a case and hear what you think about this, Brian. Um, we get ready for I, the altar call, Drew. Yeah, we get ready for the altar call. But I think about um, Dr. Oh, you're gonna, you're gonna persuade me, so just go yeah, ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. King um, in 1967 gives his Beyond Vietnam War speech, mm -hmm. um, right? And he gives this powerful speech and he's trying to connect the interconnections between all these different issues that are going on. Yes, he's against war just in principle that he thinks it's wrong, but he also sees it bound up and tied to the issues around poverty and racism here in the United States as well. There were not separate issues, right? And, and so for him, I mean, he makes the direct connect that the amount of money that we're spending to fund the war machine um, is money that's not being funded for programs for social uplift. In fact, he says, because of the disparity in how the spending is going, we're approaching spiritual death. I mean, that's literally what his quote is, right? Um, I think some of the issues around the call to defund the police is in some ways the exact same arguments just apply to what's happening here in our own context. Um, aside from the fact that I'd say policing, if we actually learn the history in the 1800s, um, Policing as we know it were formed both during the midst of economic disparities that were happening during industrialization and in the South slave patrols, right? Um, those are mm -hmm. what form the modern policing as we know it. So we could imagine other forms of safety and public safety, but what we know emerged out of those suppression of poor black and brown people, um, social movements, all of that suppression. And some of the issues which uh, Jared mentioned is in my city, and some it's actually way higher, um, but one out of 20% of our funds are going towards policing. This idea of the militarizing of policing, um, the funding, overfunding of policing, all tie into war on drugs and all these things mm -hmm. that have explicit harm against poor people, against black and brown people, against people who have drug, um, who are suffering from um, you know, drug addictions and mental health and homelessness and all these things. And so, if we're going to fund something that leads towards shalom, the flourishing of our actual neighborhoods and get at the root issues, I don't see how we could justify the militarized, bloated, budgeted policing and also those things. So a vision for shalom, I guess the question is, is this really, are these particular institutions, not that we, we need some kind of public safety, but are these institutions uh, designed to help uh, bring uh, shalom and flourishing for all of our people, especially those who are most vulnerable. I think that's an easy answer, right? For most of us to say they're not designed to do that work um, and they're not capable. So anyway, that's my case, um, the, the shorthand version of it. Yeah. I'm just here to learn from you, brother. <laughs> I'd say amen. And I think that's the, 
Where else um, but the body of Christ can we uh, gather from different histories, different sides of town, um, uh, different social locations and actually listen to these experiences from one another? There there are so few places um, uh, where we can gather that aren't dictated by commercial interests and the importance of actually um, having spaces where... um, BZ, people often forget that um, the the um, uh, proto-democracies examples that we have in European history were found in um, Protestant movements, Um, whether we be talking about um, the the Huguenots, um, uh, Puritans, uh, uh, the uh, Anabaptists, um, uh, the, the Quakers. These are examples that said, because of the image of God found in everyone, because of the priesthood of all believers, um, we must, well, to quote a song that's important uh, on the lands that you're on, uh, lift up every voice. And uh, I find it incredibly disturbing at the moment. These are, I'm not sure if you've seen any of this stuff, that um, some people are openly um, uh, having a go at democracy as if we need something else. And really what they mean is an authoritarianism. Yeah, yeah I find been, that terrifying. I, I, it's, yeah. I mean, America dodged a bullet, but it doesn't, oh my goodness. It doesn't mean there aren't more snipers out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I found that stunning. I mean, I don't, maybe we can just be a bit forthcoming here. Something has gone awry with the Republican Party. Mm. Um, I mentioned earlier, I think I said, I mentioned that my father was a judge, mm. a political man, a Republican, principled, wise. Here's the kind of man he was. At his funeral, he died in 2009. At his funeral, uh, and I spoke at his funeral, afterwards a man came up to me and he said, uh, your dad sent me to prison for armed robbery, and I'm here today to pay my respects to him because he always treated me with as much kindness and dignity as he possibly could. He never related to me as a criminal. He related to me as a, a person, a human being, that had done wrong and there needed to be some sort of sanction. Okay, so that's the kind of father I had and that's kind of judge and that's the kind of Republican he was. He didn't live to see the rise of Trumpism and Mm -hmm. uh, white nationalism taking over a conservative party. Um, I know exactly what he would have done. He would have left, he would have renounced it. Mm -hmm. But there's been so few that have had that kind of moral courage and that I find disturbing. Um, I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what my role is exactly other than to continue to make clear that uh, these kinds of postures are incompatible with following Jesus. Hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm not directly involved politically like that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a part of a political party. It's just not my particular vocation. It's not what I do. Um, but neither am I, and I think I said this earlier, neither am I taking a stance that all things are within a moral equivalency at the moment because there's, mm-hmm. there, there, there's something, uh, there, there, there's, a, there's a demonic thing that has happened among some of our political movements in America that I don't know what it's going to take to uncouple from it. And it seems that, that those with any kind of national platform who have sought to critique it, are e- they either do so as they are leaving the party or leaving office, or they are immediately marginalized. So 
can't, I mean, and we're, you know, it's just a two party system in America. That's right. Can't, can this party find its moral compass once again? Can it find some of its virtue and ethics? I don't know. I mean, I can't, I can't, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't return to the realm of honesty, facts, integrity, some sort of moral conscience, then I think that bodes ill for America, that that always has the potential of just devolving into sectarian violence. And I mean, we, we saw, we saw, we've already seen some of it now. Hopefully that's been quelled, but I don't know. Um, and of course it's complete, I mean, I mean, some of the most visible recognizable, identifiable Christian voices in America continues to, to support this movement and continue to take the name of the Lord in vain in support mm -hmm. of it. And, and that's where I will be, you know, present, outspoken, challenging. I'm willing to have a, a, whatever you want to call it, a discussion or a debate on political theology with the Franklin Grahams of this world any day they want to show up. I'll do that. <laughs> so I think that's my role. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like so much, you know, one of the things that really fascinated me was learning about Mitt Romney's dad, um, George Romney, like he was, he worked for like civil rights, he, like he actually cared about black people's well being, you know, wow. and then to see, I mean, not that Mitt Romney has always been as courageous per se, but there's something that there that has shaped him that he's been willing to at least resist completely just falling in line with most of the Republican Party. But but I think from him to his dad and then everything else that goes on, you see some of what Republicanism could have been, right? Yeah. Um, uh, versus what it has kind of devolved into. And, and I think, unfortunately, it is um, Christian nationalists that have done the most harm in, in derailing it in, in, in a whole nother direction. Yeah. Mm. Busy, I'm aware that um, we are stealing your evening with away from you uh, with your darling Perry, who um, we would love to have on sometime. Please mention to her again. We, we would love to have her on as a guest. We've loved her contributing to inverse, inverse communities community. with our right. um, subversive um, seminary. Um, it was wonderful having her as a, a part of it. Um, you, you started the conversation uh, around um, that particularly American contribution to global Christianity, which is now found everywhere being um, uh, that of the sinner's prayer and the altar call. And we often forget that Charles Finney was signing people up for the, the abolitionist movement. Yeah. And in fact, Finney would turn people away unless they were willing to literally put their name down to free slaves. Finney said, you cannot be on the right side of God on the wrong side of the slavery issue. Mm. And he, his church, Broadway Tabernacle, I think that was the name of it, in New York City, as a direct result of his abolitionist stance was burned to the ground and the fire department just wouldn't show up. Uh, and then later he moves to uh, Oberlin, Ohio and becomes the president of Oberlin University. Yeah, it, 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 it may cause uh, uh, some real cognitive dissonance for certain charismatic American revivalists to learn that Charles Finney was a, was a radical social liberal. Mm. I mean, uh, Oberlin University was the first fully integrated college in America. And uh, there was some there, and, and he was also, uh, uh, I mean, this is, we're talking, we're talking about in the 18, 
30s, 40s, 50s. He's advocating for the right for women to vote, which of course today sounds, well, yeah, of course, but no, no, we're talking, we're talking the mid 1800s, an abolitionist, women should have the right to vote, uh, American revivalist. That's so, so, so revivalism, Pentecostalism has, it, it is not actually rooted in this reactionary semi-fascist that's yes. not where it comes from yeah. um, at all. I mean, the, the first generation of Pentecostals in America were almost, were almost entirely pacifist. That's right. That's right. Yep. And, and so, so Pentecostalism begins in 1906. You know, this is, you know, a little more than a decade before the First World War. And those, that earliest wave of Pentecostals said, you know, this is incompatible with following Jesus. The mm -hmm. spirit-filled life, you know, we don't take up weapons and go kill mm -hmm. people on the other side of the ocean. Um, really, the, the turn, and then it was more ambivalent maybe in the 70s, but but it's really, it's really, to drop names here, it's really Falwell and Robertson and That's right. World Majority and, and the Christian Coalition of the, of the 80s. Yeah. Uh, and and, and to draw the connections there, BZ, that um, the conservatism, and I forget the brother's name who was talking about, he was a speechwriter for um, uh, Republican president. I think you say his name is Werner. I know how it's spelled. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Right. He's a, um, he's a very articulate, there, there would be a great example of someone who, who is a philosophical, political conservative. A Burkean, yeah. Yeah, but... Yeah. But a lovely soul and dedicated yeah. follower of Jesus, and yeah, and yeah. and that kind of um, uh, European tradition of conservatism and how it found expression in America um, with uh, the Freeman School of Chicago economics with Reagan, all that conservatism evaporated in neoliberal economic, um, uh, like in terms of what that kind of conservative vision actually looks like, which. I find fascinating um, uh, what that now means America's choices are, particularly for those of us elsewhere around the world. When you name two-party system, like, um, uh, you, you know, th there's no conservative uh, Australian politician um, uh, from our centre-right party who would be for the death penalty. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that would be against um, uh, universal health care what Americans call socialized uh, healthcare. Like they're just default realities um, in this uh, part of the world. Yeah, America is an outlier on healthcare, guns, death penalty. Yeah. I mean, I mean, basically think of death penalty. There are three kinds of states that practice the death penalty. Totalitarian states, Islamic states, United States. <laughs> That's a little, wow. <laughs> you can use that one. <laughs> yeah, that that'll that'll preach. So, I'm um, busy with that. Um, there is need for an altar call in this moment, and we clearly hear you saying that um, part of that is recovering our baptism as a, a reality to um, uh, become a people who embody the reign of God, uh, the, the kingdom of God. Um, Finney made it explicit in terms of the abolitionist movement. Uh, my last question for you before we uh, hand you back to Perry is um, what else do we need to 
to make explicit in this moment. We're living through an unprecedented ecological crisis that's globally affecting us all. But um, whether in your situation or um, globally at the moment, what, what do Christians need to make explicit when they offer altar calls? I don't know, when I hear altar call, I mean, I think, I think you know, this film had an altar call in it, it has an mm -hmm. altar call. It's that song, the hymn for the 81%, come home, you're better than this. Wow. You, you taught me better than this. You know, you people introduced me to Jesus. Mm. You're better than this. Um, our baptism calls us to live as exile. Mm. I have no allegiance left to pledge to the nation by which just through a philosophical accidental happens be my passport. All of my allegiance is pledged to Jesus. Um, I don't hate America. Um, I think I'm a, I'm a responsible citizen. I'm willing to pay my fair share of taxes. I wish, I wish that a whole lot less of it went to the military, but you know, I don't have control over that. Um, but if you're talking about pledging allegiance, my, my allegiance is pledged to Christ. And um, I think the altar call needs to be to return to a baptismal identity that actually means something, yes. that demands something, that costs something, that actually makes us some. I mean, if we, when Peter addresses the recipients of his epistle as to the exiles, mm -hmm. uh, he's he's riffing on the idea that there was a time when the Jewish people were exiles in Babylon. But these are not literal exiles that have been deported into a foreign land. Rather, their baptism has turned them into exile. In other words, these are people that, that have lived you know, in the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire all their life. But by virtue of baptism, suddenly they're a stranger in a strange land. Suddenly they're sojourners. Suddenly they're exiles. And so I think the invitation needs to... to returned the idea that a baptismal identity is real and it's demanding we're not countercultural at all within the context of the economic military superpower then i think our fidelity to christ is called into question mm. yeah. amen yeah and um you mentioned um the him for the 81 percent i actually ran into daniel a couple times because he was performing for the the movement the vote the common good so a couple mm -hmm. times when it came through i was asked to speak in pennsylvania so I, I met him a couple times and got to hear him perform that as well so i think that is a perfect benediction right or altar call so to speak yeah, i thought it was perfect um an invitation for right those who have claimed jesus so vocally um, to actually now to begin to follow Jesus, um, I think is, is the invitation for our moment. Yeah. Yeah. BZ, we love you. So thankful for your work and witness. Thank Please you. send our love to, to Perry um, and all those at Word of Life uh, Church. When I think of uh, uh, prophetic voices in the US um, who are actually doing a good job of discerning the mo moment, um, there's names such as yourself and uh, Otis Moss III and uh, Tracy Blackman um, that come, come to mind that are in the pulpit week in, week out. So I'm, I'm so thankful for your friendship and your witness. Thank you, Jared. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text 
can still turn the world upside down. Why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.